Hello and welcome to the Best Frenemies edition of Romaniacs. It's Wednesday 3rd of April. On Monday, Parliament voted down every alternative route through Brexit. Nick Bowles, who tabled the Common Market 2.0 compromise, quit the Tory party live on TV. Cabinet discipline is a distant memory and last night Theresa May announced that she was reaching out to Jeremy Corbyn to find a Brexit compromise with only nine days to go. Much like the 1942 cartoon Dog Trouble, in which Tom and Jerry team up to defeat a surly bulldog. Played by Marc Francois. <laughs> and as if Britain has not been punished enough, we've suffered the indignity of both a terrible Anish Kapoor artwork and a terrible Thomas Friedman piece in the New York Times. Leave us alone. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, the hard man of anti-Brexit, and I'm joined in the disaster <laughs> control room by Naomi Smith of Best for Britain in personal capacity only, of course. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Um, so the week started optimistically. The Revoke petition page hit six million on Sunday morning, but the debate on Revoke on Monday barely registered, and that option was soundly defeated. Customs Union, Common Market 2.0 and Final Say referendum were all relatively close votes, um, but obviously some of those we hope we're going to go over the line. What was the biggest disappointment for you? Um, for me, it was um, the, sort of the tribalism within the sects within um Parliament. So uh, I think it was disappointing that there wasn't more cooperation. There was some, um, and that there were, you know, MPs actually photographing their ballot papers and WhatsApping them to each other to prove that, look, I've not voted for my option, I voted for the other ones so that, mm. you know, they could trade votes a bit. Uh, I think it was pretty disappointing that the Tiggers were united against all forms of soft Brexit um, mm. in the indicative votes because I think that would have helped us get a long extension during which uh, we would have had uh, much more support for a confirmatory public vote if. if one of the soft Brexit options mm. that got over the line. And the People's Vote Amendment got more eyes than any other at mm. 280. It wasn't the closest, but it was the and most And 12 eyes. more than it got the week before. Uh, is there any way to get it over the top? Yeah, um, I think the, the situation that we're in now, and I'm, obviously we're going we're gonna to talk uh, quite a bit more uh, later about Customs Union and, and whatever deal May and Jeremy may or may not be able to forge, um, any sort of form of softer Brexit than her deal is obviously going to have to be renegotiated. So hopefully we are looking at a, a longer extension. But more importantly, anything that's different to May's deal, the public haven't really had time to think about and consider. Um, it hasn't really been in their consciousness at all. I mean, we're, we're the very weird outliers who obsess about this stuff. And I think that adds to the democratic legitimacy of going back to them uh, to, to ratify any kind mm. of deal. Mm. Also, with us back from a rejuvenatory couple of months looking after his mum in Mykonos, it's writer, actor, singer, cook and commentator Alex Andreo. Hi, Alex. Hello. That sounds a lot. <laughs> you, sc <laughs> you scheduled your return in time for Vote Leave to quietly abandon its appeal against the Electoral Commission's findings on the day the May deal was defeated. And Steve Baker went on Politics Live admitting he told supporters to create their own subsidiaries and each spend the 700 grand limit and then saying, I was badly advised. Well, he didn't admit it. He had the email read, read out to him. <laughs> <laughs> it was admitted for him. <laughs> yes, it, it, was, it was a little bit difficult to deny. I mean, that, that whole side of things is extraordinary. And it's extraordinary how little attention it's had. It seems to me to be a, a sort of a taboo to talk about the fact that there was, you know, unlawfulness getting up to the referendum. Um, and... I find that really bizarre from Labour's point of view because actually if Labour condone an environment where everything, anything goes, a sort of Wild West electional, electoral environment, I mean they will be buried under money come next election. The rules is everything a, a Labour Party has to sort of keep the, the playing field level. So I really don't get the reticence to to talk about this stuff. It's not controversial anymore. There's been a finding. It's been confirmed by the High Court. They've dropped their appeal. It is now a matter of public record that both significant arms of the Leave campaign cheated. Why isn't anyone talking about it? I don't get it. Presumably it's a fear that it just reads as sour grapes. Even though the legal point is very clear, I suppose they worry that the political point... Uh, sure. Seems like a distraction. Of course, but we we know that these things are seen in one particular way when they first enter the conversation, and a month later they've become a normal part of the discourse. That's how it works. Of course, you know when it's first mentioned, everyone will go sour grapes, but people will start to talk about it, like ha like what happened with the revoke petition. 
the revoke option was barely on the table before the revoke petition, and now suddenly it's part of this lexicon of the options we have going forward. And that's been all about that petition. This week's special guest is Tom Cabassi, Director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, rated the most influential think tank among Labour MPs, and co-author of Prosperity and Justice, A Plan for the New Economy, which John McDonnell called a beverage report for the economy. It's blue sky thinking on the progressive left, and he's at the centre of it. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Romaniacs. Thanks for having me on. Um, what's your own feeling about where we are right now in, in what I'll have to call the arc of Brexit, because process, really, seems too <laughs> clear a word. Yeah, well, I think where we are right now, there's the, there's a sham process of negotiation that's uh, kicking off today. And I, I don't believe it for a moment, to be honest. I think we're still in nothing has changed politics. Um, I don't think the Prime Minister has any serious intention of negotiating with Jeremy Corbyn. When faced with the options in front of her, no deal breaks the union. Uh, a uh, revocation splits the Tory party. Uh, a uh, second referendum splits the Tory party. But so does a customs union. And so, Maybe just split the Tory party. I don't believe it for a moment. <laughs> I think I, I think if she was going to accept a customs union, she would have done last night. There's obviously no deal with Labour that doesn't include that. So I think this is a sham. I think that the negotiations are set to fail. She'll use this um, to increase the pressure on the ERG um, and to up the ante with them and then bring back meaningful vote for. I then think the other thing that she's playing for in all this is just distraction. So the government is now preparing for the European Parliament elections. It knows it can't have an extension beyond the 12th of April uh, without holding those elections. And so by this so seemingly bold offer to Corbyn, it distracts from the fact that they've basically signed up for a long extension. And I think that's probably at this stage the most likely outcome. So I, I wouldn't believe this for a moment. Well, we'll talk about uh, that a little more later and talk to Tom throughout the show. Later, we've got a blue sky bonus as we talk to the progressive economist Rutger Bregman, author of Utopia for Realists. And we were going to do a big bit on Kunzberg the movie, the BBC's Brexit storm documentary, but... Uh, some other stuff happened. Um, but uh, I watched it, Tom watched it, Alex watched it. Naomi didn't watch it. <laughs> Naomi. Um, Sorry, Naomi. Really? too busy trying to stop Brexit to actually watch fucking TV, guys. I didn't want to watch it and I watched it because you told me I had to. <laughs> so, um, Tom, what did, what did you make of it? Uh, it was an odd experience, right? Because you, uh, you watched it and you're like, okay, well, that's pretty much sums up the last six or eight months of my life. Um, it's not a particular experience that I'd wish to repeat anytime soon. I only watched it because you made me watch it. Um, was it for not that fun reason, to kind of relive all the all the highlights? There was you... there was nothing fun about it. But I did think to myself, they'd done a pretty good job of summarising what had happened. And if you hadn't been paying attention in the last six or eight months, and you watched that show, you get a pretty reasonable summary of the kinds of stuff that had happened, played in a relatively straight way. So I I thought it was fine. Um, I I liked it a bit more than that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I thought the ending was just weird. This this sort of country and western wistful guitar in a sunset um, idea that oh how terrible it is that Brexit didn't happen. You know, we have to remember that half the country was jubilant that Brexit didn't happen. Um, but what I found very interesting about it was the behind the scenes stuff especially with some of the more minor players at that point, people like Steve Baker. It was just very interesting to see how genuinely excited he he was that suddenly the, all the media wanted to speak to him and he had all the cameras shoved in his face. He was genuinely buzzing, trembling with excitement. He still is. And to, <laughs> and, but but to it. me, that was a really interesting thing and why that faction of the party won't let go of the no deal idea it's because they you know they've suddenly come into prominence this this Johnny, Johnny no mates <laughs> have suddenly become hugely popular and it's really difficult it must be very difficult to let go of that my favorite bits were um, Boris Johnson quietly admitting that he he never wanted a pony or never had a pony. Yeah. So that's that cleared up because I, <laughs> I know that's been a very and big a relief And a relief to all ponies, I imagine. <laughs> but I think um, and, but sorry, and, and comparing the ERG to Begbie from Train Spotting, which seemed a very <laughs> un-Kunsberg comment to make. <laughs> I like so I think, I think No Deal actually has a really important part to play in all of this. So why was, why was 
Brexit able to win the referendum in 2016, why we could leave win, it was because it was undefined. So it was sort of hope unseen that you could imagine any possibility. And as a result, that's how you could get to 52%. I think if you'd had any kind of specific leave option, it probably couldn't have got over the line. So its undefined nature enabled it to get across the line. The big mistake the Prime Minister made with uh, pretending that no deal was better than a bad deal was not just the fact that it was always a political hoax, right? It would break the union, it would tear up 67 trade, deal, uh, trade deals around the world. I mean, it would be hugely destructive. It was also that it's allowed that Brexit fantasy to persist. So by talking about no deal, because no deal is not specified, mm. you can simply imagine any country that you want at the end of it. So you say, well, I'm in favour of no deal because at the end we'll look like this, that or the other because it's an illusion. Yeah. So it's played a really important part in the politics before the referendum and a really important part in the politics afterwards. And actually it's been May's undoing. If there was a, you know, one massive strategic mistake amongst many massive strategic mistakes <laughs> was to allow that fantasy to persist. Because she's been negotiating what with what's in people's heads, right? Yeah, if you yeah. try and negotiate with dreams and illusions, you haven't got a chance. So more dreams and illusions later. Uh, first, though, here's a last chance reminder that you can see Romaniacs on stage, as well as some of the best politics podcasts around at the Podcasts Live mini festival in London on Sunday, 7th of April. Alex and I will be appearing in a live edition of the podcast alongside Roz Taylor and making her long-awaited live debut, Nina Schick. I'm sure we'll find a few things to talk about. You can just come to our show or see a full day of political podcasts, including Sophie Ridge on Sunday from Sky, Politico's EU Confidential, The New European Podcast, and The Week Unwrapped. Or you can get out of your metropolitan elitist bubble with the bracing sounds of Chopper's Brexit Podcast or Delling Pod. Mm. Tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. I hope Delling Pod is boosting us in the same <laughs> backhanded way. I suspect he's so not. Sarcastic promotion. <laughs> Uh, tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. Patreon supporters get a discount on tickets to the Romaniac show and on full day tickets. If you're not a Patreon backer, remember you can get each episode of the show early, plus mugs, T-shirts, columns from the panel and more when you support the show. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. OK, let's take a look inside the flaming clown car that is the government's Brexit strategy. Last week, the Prime Minister offered to resign if Parliament backed her dogged deal, but MPs decided they hated it more than they hated her, and they hear her quite a lot, and refused to back it anyway. Then we had the Indicative Votes episode on Monday, which saw Labour finally come out for Common Market 2.0, though it still fell. And now the Corbyn May Dream Team uh, is going to ride to the rescue. <laughs> or not, as Tom rather cynically suggested. <laughs> Um, the May Corbyn pact is worth it just to see the rage of the ERG. Apparently they gasped when she announced it on TV. Wales Minister Nigel Adams, you know him, has resigned <laughs> over the prospect of a deal cooked up with a Marxist and Twitter was full of neatly scissored Tory membership cards. What's it really mean? Is it a trap to get Corbyn to carry the can for Brexit when it goes wrong in one way or another? If it's a deal everyone hates, it's his fault. No deal, his fault. No Brexit, his fault. Uh, he can't... So he's seen to support a Tory Brexit, but he also has to show willing and not be seen as too obstructionist. Um, Naomi, can he, can he sort of get out of this? Because I, I do think he's, um, he's played this quite well recently, and I don't think it's uh, beyond his ken to sort of to find a way out of this trap. I think my... I think in terms of what he's said so far, it's about as much as he could have said. Um, he had to say, of course, I'll, I'll help in the national interest and that this is a crisis and I am ready to, to try and help. And before we recorded, that was all that we knew that he'd said um, because he hasn't gone in to see her yet. And my fear is that he'll be rubbing his hands with glee at the prospect of delivering a soft Brexit that would help destroy the Conservative Party and that that will be the thing that he really wants to play a part in doing, helping to, to, to bring them down. When in actual fact, I think it, it may not. In the short term, yes, and we're going to see a, probably a bit of a flurry of resignations and Nigel Evans probably won't be the only one. But long term, I don't think it really will do the Tories that much damage because a softer Brexit than May's deal will mean the economic pain isn't as acute, it's more chronic. Um, and therefore less noticeable. So you won't have the Tories revolting over their asset worth depleting in quite the same way, um, uh, sorry, supporters, as you would have done. Mm. Um, so I think that actually they, they may end up not uh, being as hurt by it as he predicts or hopes for. Um, and as I've always said on this show, soft Brexit merely delays hard Brexit. And I think that what he could end up doing would be facilitating 
uh, um, the, the Conservatives being in control for another 10 years mm. um, and us having a much harder Brexit somewhere down the line. So, yeah, that, that's my concern at the moment. I'm not sure. I, I agree. I think he has, been a, he has been a bit better in his speech after the indicative votes earlier this week was definitely one of his better ones. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that he's going to be wanting to destroy the Conservatives, but actually it won't. I, I do think there is common ground that unites them, and that common ground uh, is that neither party wants to fight the next election with Brexit hanging in any way whatsoever. Um, and that's the political imperative. Uh, but both, it seems to me, also know that Brexit will be hugely damaging economically and therefore will damage the programme they want to deliver. Um, and so that's the conflict being played out. I think her reach out to him is actually not about stage one, as she outlined it, about them coming together with a, with a sort of joint proposal. It is actually about stage two, about going to the Commons with a set of agreed um, different outcomes and getting the House of Commons to vote on them. I think they will go to that straight away. But I think her uh, her appeal to him is a genuine one in that she does need her support in a vote of no confidence. I think that's the bit that I haven't seen picked up enough. I think any move she makes towards a softer Brexit will basically cause her significant chunks of her own party to vote to basically uh, put the government out of its misery and go to an election. And I think that's what she's trying to avoid. So she wants to go to a long delay with Brexit, come up with some sort of alternative, but she wants Corbyn to promise to protect her from a no-confidence motion that would bring the government down. I think that's the crux of their negotiation. Uh, Tom, there's definitely been stages where uh, it seems fair to say that, you know, the, the Tories and Labour are both divided over Brexit. But what the indicative votes seem to reveal is that Labour had held together a lot better and was also far more willing to consider other options. So it's not sort of six or one, half a dozen the other. The problem very much seems to be, um, you know, overwhelmingly on the Tory side. Do you think Labour is in a stronger position um, after all these votes than it was before? Yeah, I think Labour has held together rem remarkably well, but that's partly because they were more united in not wanting Brexit in the first place. And there is a kind of strange paradox that it almost seems that the only group that could ever deliver Brexit were those that never wanted it in the first place, um, because those that wanted it uh, had so many different fantasies about what it would be. And so actually to get to a kind of pragmatic, workmanlike arrangement, you need to not have been filled with the... Um, fantastical ideologies that uh, that so many of these people have. I, I think Labour's held together pretty well, but the reality is that in a hung parliament, relatively small groups can have a very significant impact. And that's why, for example, although most of the Labour Party supported a uh, second referendum, it didn't get through in part because Labour can't bring the full uh, uh, total of its MPs, but it's done actually remarkably well and bring, bring almost all of them. I think it's bar... 25 or 27 in the indicative mm. votes on Monday. So, so Labour's done a good job of holding together and actually you've got to give Corbyn the credit for holding his party together um, with a line that was essentially strategic ambiguity until this until this point and you know I think lots of people who are pro-Remain will say that you know he's done done it for the wrong reasons and he doesn't really care about the EU it's possibly true um, but nonetheless it's still a political accomplishment which given most people slag him off most of the time that's got to be worth something. And, and when most of our politicians are having no political accomplishments whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, when most politicians are having no political impact, at least having an impact, right? What struck me, though, is that even though their parties are kind of poles apart, that actually May and Corbyn, if it was just them, and they didn't have to worry about what their parties thought, would probably find a lot to converge on. Do you think that there's a kind of... Well, I mean, if it was if it was just that they didn't have to worry about appeasing uh, their their parties, that, that that they would kind of be uh, converging on quite a similar well, version of Brexit. Well, May has been on a journey, right? So May May's journey that that she claims she supported Remain in the referendum, but with such an absence of enthusiasm. Sucking a wasp. Um, yeah, exactly. That um, that it was pretty obvious that what she was doing was trying to 
straddle both sides and be on the winning side whilst also signaling to the losing side that she thought was going to be leave, uh, that she was still their, their, their sort of candidate for a future leadership election. Then after she became prime minister, um, she then embraced the kind of zeal of a convert and went full on fantasy Brexit, ignored reality, pretended that the economy didn't really exist, said out the customs union, out the single market. And, you know, the team in Brussels were sort of saying, well, what are we supposed to be negotiating for? You say you don't want anything that like a logical, rational person would ask. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. Right. Then what you saw was in 2018, suddenly reality interjected itself as the entire business community mobilized and said, what on earth are you thinking? Um, are you out of your mind? And then having made that massive strategic mistake of embracing the hard Brexiteers kind of fancy vision, she then had to work backwards from from there. Yeah. And so she's ended up in this sort of dog's breakfast Brexit, where it's neither a hard Brexit nor a soft Brexit. It's some sort of mess in between, right? So the withdrawal agreement contains a customs union. We all pretend it doesn't contain a customs union, but the conditions in the withdrawal agreement may as well say that you have to bring a you know, jar of magic beans to the commission or arrive on a flying carpet for there not to be a customs union. Mm. So she's already moved to a sort of semi-soft Brexit, a flaccid Brexit, if you will. Um, (laughs) Whereas, you know, Corbyn... Not an Erexit. Not an (laughs) Erexit. Corbyn on the other side, right, I think, you know, I think he's... I think it's pretty clear he's always been a Eurosceptic. I don't think people would deny that. I think he is genuinely opposed to what he sees as Tory Brexit. So I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which he is committed to not a Tory version of Brexit. That said, I think what he wants sincerely is a is a soft Brexit because he thinks that we should leave because there was a referendum. And uh, he thinks that a soft Brexit secures the things that he cares about. So in that sense, yes, there is some overlap, but politically they're in such different positions that you know there's never going to be a meeting of minds on this. Isn't, isn't the danger, and maybe Naomi can can say something on that. Isn't the danger that we end up with uh, Corbyn supporting the withdrawal agreement on the promise of jam tomorrow mm-hmm. and then we get a new exactly, leader yeah. in the Tory party that just rips it, it all out? Because I can't yeah. think of a way to secure that legally, yeah. as it were, other than a people's vote. And so to me, it seems it would be foolish for Corbyn to accept anything that c- doesn't contain the lock of a referendum at the tail end of it, because there's no other legal way to to bolt it down. Mm, mm, Absolutely. And we've long been saying that a final say referendum is, it's not an option, it's a solution. It's the only thing that can really get any of these people out of the situation that they find themselves in, whether it's Corbyn, whether it's May, whether it's others. Um, And you're right, what, what he hopefully will be calculating is that no matter what he does agree with her the knives are out for her her days are numbered i know we felt like we've been saying this for a couple of years it was, now but it was said in the uh, in the bbc documentary wasn't yeah. it there was there yeah. was steve baker saying months ago well you know is she going to resign when she announced one of her non-speeches indeed. indeed so you know now that the clock really is running down for her and it looks highly likely uh, that whoever replaces her is going to be a, a, you know to the right of her certainly on the issue of europe um, and, and you know, he can't rely on any of that. Um, what would it be worth? But yeah. also the Labour movement, I don't think, is going to put up with with something that doesn't deliver a bare minimum a customs union alignment on, on workers' rights, environmental protections, and, and I think a, a confirmatory vote. So I think even if there is an attempt to get to a compromise permit position, I think the, the wider Labour movement will react pretty strongly to that because... Um, Corbyn has set his stall by a customs union so strongly. The trade unions are very committed on the point of uh, worker rights in particular and how those are protected. And then the wider membership um, Mm -hmm. care a lot about uh, a confirmatory vote. Mm -hmm. So you've got actually the labour movement that means that Corbyn's room for manoeuvre I think is relatively relatively yeah, but, small. But the, the point is, how do we get there technically? Because the moment you sign the withdrawal agreement, Remain ceases to be. But that's what I'm saying. I don't think he will. Way of revoking. No, but I'm saying he. I don't think he will. So I, I don't think he. Can, I don't think he can just agree to a, a, a format where you sign up to the withdrawal agreement and you know sort out the rest later. Because that's what she was trying to do with not quite meaningful vote three. 
uh, when was that? This week? Was that last week? Last was, Friday. Was it? Like, yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, when you don't sleep, your days all blur into one. Um, uh, so yeah, that's ex- essentially what she was trying to do. She was just she dropped the political declaration bit and was just trying to get them all to sign up to the withdrawal agreement bit, and of course they didn't. So. Mm. Um, well, talking of compromise or lack of, um, we'll talk about the aftermath of the indicative votes, uh, which led to kind of recriminations on all sides with uh, various kind of st- uh, camps of Remainer attacking each other for not backing a compromise. Um, Labour backed all, Labour backed three of the four, but wouldn't whip for Joanna Cherry's amendment for automatic revocation just because it was an SNP motion, it seemed. Um, that came last. But then equally, the independent group, uh, voted against the customs union option, Ken Clark's, while the SNP abstained and the Lib Dems were split between voting against or abstained. If you actually try and... I was trying to kind of mm. work out, there's some very good interactive graphics where you could actually click yeah, on the are, things yeah. and it would tell you who was who. Yeah. And the whole idea that I sort of had in my head that there was kind of these, you know, all the smaller parties were kind of solidly <laughs> remain and then they would go... And they were just, it was just sort of splintering all over the place. Yeah. Um, the independent group also voted against Common Market 2.0. Um, as these are all indicative, mm. and some Remainers, particularly Labour Remainers, uh, seemed quite happy to vote for all four options, what was the reasoning? Let's start with the, the independent group and mm. for not supporting the customs union fell because, because some people wouldn't yeah. tolerate any yeah. form of yeah. Brexit. Do you think that was. Unwise, or do you think they should have just stuck to their guns and gone, we don't want Brexit at all? No, I don't think it was wise. And that, that's sort of what I said at the top of the show. I think that was the thing I found most disappointing. But it's not just them. There, there were others too. And obviously Nick Bowles' own resignation speech alluded to it. Um, there, there were Remainers across all the parties. Now, some of them, and I have to say a lot of them, did do the right thing and they were trying so bloody hard um, to make sure that one version of soft Brexit won so that we could mm. cobble confirmatory vote onto it. Um, but just not enough of them. I think it was very disappointing. I think they may regret it slightly. Um, they're playing politics with it. It's, I mean, it's, it's politically it's rational. It is politically rational. If, they, if they're planning of going into the European elections coming up as, as a party that can say we've genuinely never voted for any form of Brexit, it is politically rational. But it is also... Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to me especially a high stakes gamble. Especially yeah, when it was yeah, only indicative. It's a high st- I mean, Norman Lamb was on, on TV yeah, today yeah. saying he was thinking of quitting the Liberal Democrat yeah. whip yeah. because they refused to back one of the soft yeah. Brexit options. A Liberal Democrat no, he threatening to quit. He, he, was, he was worse than that because he said he, he likened uh, Lib Dem Romaniacs like me uh, to the ERG in terms of how zealous we are and how mad and crazy we are and but that we're I, I, unable to compromise. I mean, that's and an just, extraordinary feature. Well, we, well, the Lib Dems have already lost one MP, uh, Stephen Lloyd, who resigned the whip um, earlier this year over Brexit. And They've Norman Lamb was... Exactly. <laughs> I can afford it. Uh, and Norman Lamb did abstain on uh, triggering Article 50, of course, when most Lib Dem MPs voted against. Um, so uh, perhaps unsurprising, but incredibly disappointing on the So why did, why did Labour... Uh, not support the revoke that Joanna Cherry. I mean, I don't have a good answer for 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 why. I mean, I I, I would have I would have thought um, it's because many people, and I, I have to say I'm one of those included, don't think that revoke is a, a credible political option. I don't think you can have a plebiscitary moment in politics and then just decide that you're going to cancel it altogether. And I think many will feel uh, that you need to, if you're going to change course then you need to have either a general election or a second referendum to do that. And I, I have to say, I'm one of them. I, I don't think it's democratically tolerable Jerry's um, to do it in defence of it, yeah. was, did propose that we revoke effectively as a, as a means to regroup, regather, pause, think what it is we okay. want, and then put, okay, put it to another referendum. But we also know that that doesn't work under European law because we know that a revocation has to be in good faith. And so it has to be. It has to be. It cannot be used as a device for a, to achieve a delay. And I think. I, I think in this particular case also, you know, they'll be thinking going to the public who aren't paying a huge amount of attention to this process because it's so tortured and unpleasant. Um, and the public would say, well, why did you vote to cancel Brexit? And I don't. So I, I don't think the revocation thing to me is a particularly credible form of politics. Like I get why some people were keen for it but I don't I don't take it seriously myself and I, I don't think I'm unrepresentative amongst people yeah. on the left and that 
regard. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone is super keen on it uh, as, a, as a politically smart move. It's just that there are a lot of people who believe that ultimately it may come down to dropping out with no deal or revoking. <clears throat> and so there needs to be an what, I, what I would call as an actor, mm-hmm. dramatic preparation mm-hmm. for that moment yeah, so I, that it doesn't come as a huge just, shock. But what we learned, it may right? come down to that. But what, what we learned is that May is not prepared to go for no deal. Yeah. So we've learned that now. And I think I think had it been thought that it was credible that they would take the country over the cliff and go for no deal and break the union and burn 67 uh, trade agreements with 67 countries, then I think you would have got a different response. But I don't think people sincerely believe uh, that, that the prime minister is prepared to do that. And to be honest, I don't even believe that the cabinet members who claim to be behind no deal are. It's just that they know that they're lunatics. And, well, it's so the lunatics and the Tory party okay, who back sure, it, right? May so may not go for it, but Macron might. And I think that's no. the point. Well, no, it's unlikely. But, but the point is that it only requires mm-hmm. one of the 27 members to say, we've had enough who has very loose ties with the UK and doesn't really give a shit. Yeah, but they have strong ties with the other 26. Sure, absolutely. It's politically unlikely, but it's not impossible just because the UK has excluded it as a possibility. That's the point. Our fate is partly in other people's hands. Yeah, but I think they're all much more rational than our politics. Yes, I, I agree. Wouldn't be hard. Following the no-confidencing of Dominic Grieve by his local Tory party association, Nick Bowles' surprise resignation in the House felt like another key moment in the Tory party's death spiral. Meanwhile, Marc Francois, otherwise known as the eighth of Snow White's dwarves, fighty, is never <laughs> off the airwaves. Um, are the moderates on the way out? Does it feel more like it's the party of Francois than Bowles and obviously the people that have already left to join the independent group? I mean, I think part of the problem... Um, in the current situation is that it's it's the one that shouts the loudest um, that, that seems to think that they own the issue um, and the Conservative Party has just absolutely failed over the last few decades to combat this growing uh, type of ultra Eurosceptic um, in their party but there are some good Conservatives fighting back from within um, and they're trying to prevent a policy that they themselves see as fundamentally unconservative but, but, will, they, but, yeah, but will they stay? And, uh, well I think they they don't intend to give up lightly, um, and there are there in, include some cabinet members in that um, that are trying to do the sensible thing, and they've now got a bit more of a sustained movement within the party uh, to ensure that we um, avoid no deal. But you know, I think I, I think any form of Brexit breaks up the Labour Party, and most forms of Brexit are going to break up the Conservative Party ultimately. But do I think that they're all going to walk? imminently no I've said that I think there'll be a trickle of other resignations from the right but I think those moderates are clinging on now and beginning to see a bit of light in terms of clawing back power in their party I think it's a big mistake to think that the radicalization of the Conservative Party is limited to the issue of Europe Um, I think if you look at what's happened in the last decade we've had austerity that jettisoned 80 years of economic thinking uh, and said in a downturn let's cut government spending Um, and inflicted suffering on huge numbers of people, pushing people into destitution and extraordinary hardship. Four million Um, children now in relative poverty. Living in poverty. I mean, it's the the shocking numbers across every category. Poverty has gone up. So that's already a form of Mm radicalisation. You had Theresa May in the Home Office introducing something that, I mean, the clue was in the title, the hostile environment, (laughs) right? Who was going to create a hostile... He wouldn't dress it up and ended up exporting... British uh, um, deporting British um, British citizens. That is a radical and sending step. out go home vans and sending out go vans saying go home to ethnically mixed areas. So the idea that this is just you know a narrow problem within the Conservative Party is not true. This is a part of a wider radicalisation of the right of British politics that has been obscured because the press is so far to the right that they pretend that this process hasn't been underway. Meanwhile, as Labour's shifted to the left, there's been constant examination of that change in Labour's positioning, whilst there's been almost no scrutiny uh, of this shift to the radical right and the Conservatives. So you've got to see this as part of a broader trend uh, where the, the Conservative Party is no longer a, a, a Conservative Party as we once understood it, that believed in institutions and being cautious and careful about yeah, yeah. change. This is now a radical right party. Mm. But isn't that because I mean, it's partly like a leader thing, is that Corbyn, there's no, no two ways about it. He's obviously from the party's radical uh, left, whereas Theresa May, 
like you said, on, on immigration, she's incredibly kind of hawkish and, and, and right wing. Um, but she's not seen as such. She's not seen as a representative of the right of the party. So that may be part of the reason why it sort of obscures that that narrative, because she still has that tradition of being like, oh, we shouldn't be the nasty party. She still has this kind of uh, perhaps, you know, unearned reputation I mean, that was nearly being two, decades nearly two ago. decades and, ago. And there's I mean, not much that isn't nasty about the Windrush scandal. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying. Exactly. I'm just, I'm just wondering. I'm wondering if there is. If this yeah. would become well, a lot point. clearer and more undeniable with a, with whoever well, follows but this me, is, but this is my point about about perception, right? Which is also driven by by the newspapers, and so they haven't framed her as being a, a radical right wing conservative prime minister. They've framed her as being, you know, this great national hero who's serving the British people and sort of beating the nationalist drum. I I think that is the the reason she's perceived that way, and whoever follows. They'll do the same thing with again, right? It will be that they're all kind of moderation and reason, even if they're batshit crazy. Well, they may and, even end up outbidding each other to to sort of take it further. Well, that's what they're doing at the moment, right? Why, why is Jeremy yeah. Hunt, right, who who voted to remain, and by other accounts, you know, not a completely crazy ideologue? Why on earth is Jeremy Hunt now saying that he supports an immediate no deal Brexit? It's because 75% of the Tory membership are behind a no deal Brexit. So they are playing to the extremists in their very small party of just 80,000 members. Hopefully more of them will scissor their membership cards in outrage at talking to a Marxist. (laughs) And they'll reduce the numbers. The the only balancing factor to that, of course, is that they're, they're running out of donations. (laughs) <laughs> That's the the only saving grace is that they are in serious financial trouble at the moment. Well, in many and so, and actually going further to the right might make business go. They're not our representative anymore. Are the Tories in in any fit state to fight a general election now? I mean, they weren't last time, <laughs> as it turned out. Well, I think I think they. I, I don't think it was about fitness last time. They were in a fit state. They just had a a, a leader who couldn't campaign. They built a cult of personality around her. And then they had, you know, most elections can be understood as a change election or a keep things the same election, status quo election. And they fought a status quo campaign in a change election. Mm. So the fundamental errors they made were strategic, not could, did they have enough posters or enough of a ground Well, they force. weren't ready in a, lot of, in a lot of places. Yeah, but I don't, I, 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 I would not overstate the tactical issues versus the strategic issues what they also did was they timed it too late if they if they'd had the election before article 50 had been triggered they could have framed it as the brexit election right so when article 50 was laid before the house there were 110 labor amendments to it if theresa may had withdrawn the bill and said look labor's trying to wreck brexit they've laid 110 amendments we can't get it through we need a majority to deliver on the will of the british people I think you would have had the Brexit election, and she might have done rather well by um, by by waiting and doing it after Article Fifty had been triggered. Most British people were like, "Oh, well, that's sorted. You know, Brexit's been done now, and so it turns domestic well concerns." Different issues. Well, they went back to domestic <laughs> concerns, right? In which case, most people went, "Actually, I'm not very happy with how things are right now. Thank you very much." And strong and stable is a plan to keep everything the same. Does anyone around the table want a general election? I do. Yes, please. <laughs> I want a general election. I just don't want a general election campaign. And I think most people would agree with that. When people say, oh, God, not, another, campaign, not another campaign. I'd love a general election. general election. I just, I, I think it's the, the wrong solution to the right question. I, I'm with the people that just don't see how it solves this. But I just think everyone moment. knows what everyone's about by now. Just have an ele- just announce an election and a referendum like next Sunday. Say nothing about it. <laughs> everyone knows how they want to vote. <laughs> just get it done. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I'd be so. so why for do you, it. why do you want one? Well, because I think well, firstly it's a parliamentary problem, right? So I, I I I do think that there's a possibility that the arithmetic changes. I I then think well, Labour would offer renegotiate and and referendum. Um, and so most Remainers would, I think, pile into voting Labour. Uh, Theresa May would offer the withdrawal agreement and say, you know, um, just get on with it, Brexit. Would they let her? Yeah, well, they'd say just get on with it. But what else are they going to do if she calls one now? And I think in the end, would I, if she took her deal to the public in the form of a general election, she won a majority, I would accept it. And I would just accept that we had given the people another chance to have a say. They rejected it and it would go ahead and I would just you know, suck it up and, and, and I'd 
be okay with it. And I think actually it would open up the possibility of a of a second referendum if they voted the other way. Yeah. So I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I couldn't support Labour right now, even though um, you know it's my natural home and has been for many many years. But the way the last vote was aggregated. Uh, in order to say that 80-odd percent of people voted for Brexit, mm. um, when it was quite clear that wasn't the case, and the, the way Labour did not fight that narrative in any way, says to me that I need to register my vote for someone else, even if that makes no difference locally, electorally, or even if it lets a Tory in, whatever, because it splits the vote. Because otherwise my vote is going to be co-opted for Labour's version of Brexit. Well, I'm, I'm saying I think Labour would offer, offer renegotiate and second referendum. I don't think there's any world in which Labour goes into a general election uh, uh, if we haven't had a withdrawal agreement go through. If it's not a done deal, then if there is a general election, Labour will offer renegotiate and a, and a referendum. Do you I think, think it, they have to offer a referendum? I, I think don't forget well, that. Don't policy. forget. Well, that's it's it's their policy, but also you've got to remember that Labour has is a democratic party, genuinely, and it does have that formation between its membership and the trade unions and all its different constituent bodies. So there's something called a clause five meeting that decides the manifesto. In that meeting that decides the manifesto, I think they will say renegotiate and referendum i think the chance of them just saying renegotiate and we're sticking with brexit i think are very low that's a much more formal process than say rebecca long bailey or barry gardner on stage and being like, I oh, don't know, maybe there'll be a referendum, maybe not, maybe we won't need one. Well, that's why the, there is actually some truth. There. When they say, well, we'll have to see what was in the manifesto, there is actually a Labour Party process to define that. And so there is some truth that the outcome is in fact uncertain. But the unions are pretty clear that they are not happy with, with leaving in an arrangement that would erode um, workers' rights and environmental protections. And I think they will insist on a confirmatory vote. I don't know that for sure, but, but I think that's likely. But if that's the case, why did Labour going to the last election saying we'll leave the customs union in the single market? I mean, where, where was that process then? What were the unions saying then? Well, I, I, I don't believe they... They did say that. They said they respected the referendum result, and I don't think they put definition to what their well, policy would be. They said they would pursue I, a close relationship. It was yeah, they the did. Well, but also technically, you have to leave the customs union, form a new and comprehensive customs union. So, just on a pure technical basis, you could not stand on a position which is technically impossible to leave the European Union, stay in the European Union customs union. You would have to form a new customs union between the United Kingdom and the European Union customs union. That's just point of technicality. Our special guest this week is Tom Kabassi, Director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, where he's headed up research into the NHS, the impact of Brexit and the relationship between technology and society. Uh, so, Tom, we've, we've kind of touched on this already. Um, what would have been your kind of uh, what do you think was going to happen? after the referendum, what would you have been, which solution would you have been happiest with? Because like you said, you, you think revoke is sort of undemocratic. So what what do you think would have would have been something you could have been happy with? Well, I think, so I think at the, the starting point, the kind of natural conclusion from a very close referendum result um, would be something that would bring both sides together. And broadly, you could say that leavers had concerns about sovereignty and immigration and that Remainers were particularly concerned about free movement and the economic impacts. I think that's not an unreasonable uh, set of assumptions. And certainly the polling that was done on the day of the vote suggests that's what was motivating people on either side of the divide. As a result, I would have thought that the natural response to a close result would have been to say we're going to continue our economic partnership but on a new political basis uh, and that there will have to be a compromise around uh, freedom of movement. So I think there was actually quite a territory for for finding um, a compromise arrangement that most people could live with. I think instead the Prime Minister marched way off to the right. You had the citizens of nowhere Speech. You then had Lancaster House where she said, you know, we're not going to be doing anything. So, I mean, if you take Lancaster House to its logical Mm. conclusion, it's almost like here's my plan for no deal, right? So um, I I think as a result, it very quickly moved into territory where she essentially disinvented 48% of the population. And so we've just never had a serious discussion about what would be an outcome 
that most people could live with. And I think as long as she made no effort to secure losers' consent, it's completely understandable that no one on the 48% side would say, well, I accept it. And I think that's been the politics that we've got. She's gone for a divisive politics, and you get the result of that, which is essentially 50-50 nation. We're split down the middle, <laughs> right? And and no one accepts it. So I think there could have been a different path that had been taken. I do think if you have a plebiscitary moment in politics, you have to listen to it. And the idea that you could just say, well, you got it wrong, I don't think is good enough. I don't think we should have had the referendum in the first place. And if we were going to have a referendum, I think having a referendum with an undefined leave option was lunacy. But having had that, yeah. I, I do think, you know, it, the, the government owed the people an attempt to bring people together and find a solution that could work for, for both sides. That would be messy, but possible. And what did it mean for the, and does it continue to mean for the left? Because there's sort of, obviously the the uh, the sort of most comfortable interpretation for, from the left is that it was largely a rejection of, you know, austerity and the establishment. And that's something that I think, well, anyone around this table could sort of get behind uh, that idea but then there's also the you know the immigration aspect the nationalist energy behind it um and that seems to be something that i mean continues continues to split the continues to split the left yeah i think i, I think it's some um, i don't think the left is actually particularly split on 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 these issues i mean i think i think it was a coalition right and like in any vote and there were some people who were kind of nationalist and racist, and that was a relatively smaller proportion. I think there were some people who were insulated from the consequences who voted for it. And let's not forget, you know, this isn't just a kind of cry of pain of the working class. There were mm. plenty of people who were insulated from the effects who voted for it. And then I think there was a big vote against the status quo. And the, people, the reason people voted against the status quo was that the status quo sucked. And they were, you know, understandably, they said, do you want to keep everything the same? And they said, fuck no which was kind of understandable. And I think you've got to remember, I know I listened to your thing about, you know, cheating and all that sort of crap. I have to say, I'm not on the same page with you at all. And the reason for that is this, and I don't think this is properly understood by Remainers. The referendum campaign was structured by two great lies. There was a massive lie about £350 million a week for the NHS, but there was also a massive lie about don't risk the economic recovery. At the time of the referendum, in no part of England other than London and South East, and not in Wales, Scotland, nor Northern Ireland, had output per person, disposable income per person, recovered to its pre-crisis peak. People were told, don't risk something you haven't had. It was actually a lie. And so I think you've got to understand that in that was the context But I of wouldn't it. disagree with any of that. Well, but the idea that, you know, one side cheated by lying and the other side didn't cheat. No, I, I, no, I think he's talking about legal lying. cheating. I think actually they, they acted Well, unlawfully. fine, but even even then, right, the government put out a leaflet saying, here are all no, the reasons sorry, the government... No, I'm sorry, there's no government, even then. There's well, okay, but the government... rule of law when well, it comes to come the Well, but come on, government... Well, there isn't. There's no well, even but gov- then. Well, but government spent £10 million sending a leaflet to every household saying this is why the government thinks you should vote Remain. So I don't think... Mandated to do by oh, the legislation. On. I mean, I, I think I think at the end of the day, you had a had a result that was close. You had an obligation to try and bring the country back together. The government decided not to do that, and it has faced the consequences of those dreadful strategic decisions that were made to have a referendum, to un- leave a, leave the, have the leave option undefined, and then a dreadful strategy to divide the country after that. And and this is the outcome of that. And, and, and just getting back to the point you made about, you know, anywhere outside the southeast, you know, levels hadn't recovered to their pre-crisis uh, points. Um, your, one of your uh, predecessors at IPPR, um, James Cornford, did this amazing piece of work around co- our constitutional uh, deficit and our constitutional crisis. IPPR obviously has IPPR North. Um, and I think it was Anthony Selden last week who said that... Um, the, the constitutional crisis we're facing at the moment is much worse than it was in the pre-Charter 88 days. Um, what, what do you see as IPPR's sort of thinking around that? I mean, in terms of the Brexit time capsule, I put in the whole of the UK because I think that's something that we are going to miss if we Brexit because I don't see how we hold the country together. Where's IPPR's thinking? So there's two, two parts to that. So, so James wrote this incredible uh, piece of work that actually was a written constitution. Yeah. And I think what we've learned in the last few months is that this idea of an unwritten constitution is very misleading. Britain has a class-based constitution, 
which is where the ruling class have a set of rules and conventions about how they're going to govern everyone else. Mm. And when you write down a constitution, you can popularise it because they're constitutional rights that sit with the people rather than sitting with the elite. And what we've seen is that an unwritten constitution is in fact a class-based constitution. What Brexit has done is to detonate the agreement amongst the ruling class about how they're going to rule everyone else. And so I think one of the outcomes of all of this ought to be a written constitution. At IPPR, we're about to start some research on participatory democracy. We've worked on that over many years, but we're doing some fresh thinking on that about how can you get people back engaged constructively and listening across the divide. Our work through the Commission on Economic Justice, Prosperity and Justice, Plan for the New Economy, published in September, had the Archbishop of Canterbury as a commissioner, the head of the TUC, Francis Grady as a commissioner, head of the City of London Corporation, businesses, trade unionists, community activists. Good people. Really terrific group of people. And um, what was really striking was that when we put together our sort of radical plan to fix the economy, um, we tested it with, in polling with the public. Every single measure that we proposed um, was popular and every single measure uh, was supported by both Leavers and Remainers. So actually in the country as a whole, whilst we're divided on Brexit, there actually is an agenda for bringing the country back together Mm. to radically reform the the economy to make sure that you get prosperity and justice at the same time because Mm. the status quo is desperately unfair um, and that was one of the reasons people voted to leave in the first place and we've lost sight of that by having this massive row mm. about our relationship with Europe. And at some level, I think that Brexit is a proxy war for the kind of country we want to be. This is really a battle for the vision of Britain. It's not just a battle for our relationship with Europe or our relationship with the world, but it's also a battle about what kind of country do we want to be. One thing that, that has baffled me all the time we've been doing this podcast is, is why um, intelligent progressives are drawn to to Lexit. Um, now, your, your colleague, Grace Blakely, is, is one of the more sort of articulate and least off-putting uh, advocates for Lexit. But this event, the, the full Brexit event, where uh, the, the, uh, Eddie Dempsey um, sort of sympathised with Tommy Robinson supporters and attacked people for taking money for George Soros, and it, that turned into a kind of like a you know, a row which involved Clive Lewis and people from Young Labour and, and so on. And it just it sort of set up a whole kind of like stink of kind of blue Labour, Labour leave, of kind of nativism and nationalism. Um, now, I know that doesn't apply to every supporter of, of Lexit. Do you, do you understand? Have you ever felt, heard the, the siren song of Lexit? Do you understand what the, the case for it is for people who are not... Uh, Nationalists. Well, I think I think the issue is that Lexit is a mirage, right? It looks good from a distance, um, but when you get up close, there's nothing there. And the reason for that is that you've got a Conservative government negotiating Britain's exit from the EU. So the idea that a Conservative government would negotiate a left-wing exit is ludicrous. Um, I think the second part to it is that it's one of those things that, in similar to other Leave options, it's one of those fantasy things where you get to do and have all the things that you like and want and none of the things that you don't like or want. So, for example, you end up having frictionless trade with the EU, but able to subsidise businesses left, right and centre. And, of course, any part of a customs union would be restrictions on state aid, because if you're not going to have tariff barriers, you've got to have fair competition. So, you know, there's just a lot of misunderstanding um, there. I, I think there is an important element in all of this about identity that really matters and is underplayed and, and, and under-examined. I went on the left block part of the um, march oh, a couple of weeks we, ago. Yeah, I think we were yeah. near you. And, um, and it was striking that, you know, all of Labour's black MPs attended or supported the march and fully 50% of Labour's black MPs uh, stood up and spoke um, at that march. And I think when you look at the diversity of the faces there, I think people feel that this is also a rejection of them. I went with my dad. He's a 77-year-old man who's from Iraq. And I think for him it was really important to be there, Mm -hmm. partly because I think Brexit feels, for a lot of people, not just about customs unions and trading blocks and single market regulation, Mm -hmm. but about the idea that Britain really belongs to an ethnic identity of, of white British people 
and it doesn't belong to other people. And so I think that element is underexplored. It was yeah. fantastic that seeing that left block with uh, mixed race MPs, black MPs, Muslim MPs standing up and, and speaking with another Europe is possible for me was the, the best part of the march because I'd, I'd long said that until the Remain marches look more like the anti-Trump mm. marches, we're, we're not quite winning. And that bit of the march at that moment in time felt much, much, much more like the anti-Trump I also march. like the fact that some people just didn't agree with it. Yeah, yeah I, I heard some people kind of, you know, when there was kind of, and Jeremy yeah. Corbyn will do this. And I thought, actually, that's good. good. It's kind of what I like about this podcast <laughs> yeah, is that you can have plurality. people on and you're broadly yeah. on the same side, but you do disagree and yeah. you want disagreement. You don't want everybody to be in exactly the same position Groupthink. just because Terrible. they all oppose Brexit. Yeah. So I thought that was great. Now, you wait ages for a radical progressive left thinker to turn up, then two arrive in the same week. Dutch historian Rutger Bregman is the author of the current hot read on politics, Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There. Centrist dads, look away now. <laughs> if history teaches us one thing, Bregman says, it's always that change never starts in the centre, but it always starts on the fringes, with people who are first dismissed as crazy and unreasonable and ridiculous. Our producer, Andrew Harrison, met Rutger to see if his ideas really are crazy, unreasonable and or ridiculous. It's good to tear your mind away from Brexit now and again to try and envisage the kind of world we might want to build after this mess is over, or at least after we've shoved it under the stairs. But it's also hard to blot out the drumbeat of news which says that everything is getting worse all the time. Not so, says Rutger Bregman, Dutch historian and the author of the book Utopia for Realists. His argument is the world is a better place to live in than it has ever been, and it's probably going to get better. But what we need to rediscover is our idealism and bigger visions for the future than the basic managerialism that characterised the post-war consensus. The liberal left, he says, needs to envision its own version of utopia to compete with the radical right's individualist, isolationist, nationalist dystopias. The book touches on universal income, a 15-hour work week, the end of bullshit jobs like marketing, PR and admin, and higher taxation of capital. And he's annoying some interesting people. You may have read how Tucker Carlson of Fox News first spiked an interview with Bregman and then bade him farewell with the words, why don't you go fuck yourself, you tiny brain? <laughs> We're not going to say that on Remain X. Hello, Rucker. Thanks for coming in. How are you doing? It's nice to be here. Thanks. That, that was a, a, a golden moment in television. Uh, you know, and good on you for leaking it because otherwise it would have just taken place within the studio and never been known about it. Yeah, it was hilarious. I didn't actually know that at the time the, uh, the producer in the studio was was filming it oh, right. so the, the interview had just happened and i thought the whole thing was just hilarious <laughs> you yeah. know tucker carlson shouting in my ear <laughs> we're a brexit podcast um brexit's a utopian proposition in its way in its way yeah it is won't people be wise to be wary of utopian solutions after brexit and trump both of which are promised utopias well it's a great example of how political change works right so mm -hmm. not very long ago maybe 10 or 20 years ago the idea of Brexit was already there, but it was dismissed as a radical, crazy idea. That would never happen. And here we are. So that's what I'm really interested in. How does that work? Mm. Where do you think the populisms of Brexit and Trumpism came from? What, what, is, is there a basic root or is it a kind of coalesce, a coalescing of different factors? Oh, it's a huge question. I think that the simple answer here is that people just wanted a major break from the status quo. And if you, they only got a hammer <laughs> yes. and they used it. Uh, because they had nothing else. The centre of your utopian proposition is promoting income equality by breaking the link between work and income. There's a very funny chapter title, Why We Should Give Free Money to Everyone. It's the most effic uh, efficient, most effective, most civilised way to completely eradicate poverty. And I would argue that actually free money in the form of a basic income for everyone is actually an investment that pays for itself, right? Because healthcare costs go down if you eradicate poverty, crime goes down, kids do much better in school. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's something for the left in it. But there's also, you know, it also makes sense for people on the right. Um, it makes financial sense. The first objection that's usually raised to this is, well, who's going to pay for it then? Can we afford it in Western countries? Yeah. Well, partially we pay for it, obviously, with higher taxes. An, an idea that's uh, an, another one of those ideas that five, six years ago, if I would have said that, I would have been dismissed as this crazy socialist. But now you, you can actually go viral with giving a speech about taxes, 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 you know, as I did in, in Davos. Um, so that's where part of the funding would come from, obviously. Um, but then the other thing is that, as I mentioned, we shouldn't just look at the costs. We also sh should see them as investments that pay for themselves just because they will make our societies much healthier. And the idea of raising taxes has been politically radioactive in this country for 30 years. Mm -hmm. there, there, there still remains, if you're old like me, you can still remember marginal tax rates in the 80% yeah. kind of era. And that was blamed uh, for the sluggish economic growth in the country. Yeah. Um, 
But if you're young like me, you're not (laughs) traumatized by the Cold War. So the usual objection here is always, oh, that sounds like communism, that sounds like socialism or Venezuela. But that trick doesn't work anymore with a new generation, you know, that realizes we need to do something about the massive inequality. We need to radically transform our economy when you talk about a threat like climate change. So to be a moderate these days or to be a centrist or whatever, that's the real radical crazy thing right now. So uh, what's very frustrating from my perspective is that in the UK, there doesn't really seem to be a a proper opposition party, right? Uh, And I'm much more enthusiastic about a politician like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, the congresswoman Mm -hmm. in the US who really puts forward these bold visions for how we can make uh, our country's much better places to live in. It's interesting that on the the basic income subject, you actually lose quite a lot of, you know, case studies and uh, sort of argument from the from the political right. Uh, Richard Nixon's now forgotten experiments with it. Mm-hmm. The idea that income security allows people to be entrepreneurial and to work harder, yeah. to make capitalism work better. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a bit more about that. I mean, you know, why is it that this used to belong to the right? Mm-hmm. And no longer does. Yeah, well, Margaret Thatcher was once asked the question, what was your biggest victory? And she said Tony, Tony Blair yeah. and, and New Labour. That's, that's how real political change works. So people can hardly imagine that at the end of the 60s, almost everyone in the US and the Canada wants to implement a guaranteed basic income and wants to abolish poverty, basically. Uh, but that that is actually what people wanted to do back then. So what I'm interested in is how can we shift the whole political spectrum? And actually, since I published this book a couple of years ago, I think you you more or less see that happening. People are discussing ideas right now, like higher taxes on the rich, like universal basic income, that were dismissed not very long ago, and it's now moving into the mainstream. It's been an article of faith that uh, income inequality drove Brexit. Um, but re- recent research from the LSC showed that in terms of their personal income, the vast majority of Remain voters are barely distinguishable from the vast majority of Leave voters. Mm-hmm. But it's actually not really about left behind, poor, or, you know, not mm-hmm. participating in society block having its revenge on the well-off metropolitan uh, group, that it's actually something else at work. That, that That's, you know, where do you think the discontent is coming from? Is it purely from income inequality? Well, I'm not a Marxist in the sense that I do not believe that history is governed by material forces, like mm-hmm. how, how, how high is your salary and that, that predicts what you're going to vote. Um, I think it's really about ideas. Uh, and which that's that's what you should be looking for. Now, the frustrating thing is that obviously Brexit could mean many things, but now it looks like that you know there are there are groups here in the UK who want to use Brexit as a way to make it the country into paradise for billionaires, right? Hmm. Um, that's what I think you should be very very wary of. Uh, but then at the same time, I must also admit that now, for example, if I look at the the discourse around Brexit in Holland, where I'm from, uh, the feeling is. Well, maybe it's for the best, because Britain has been a, in a pain in the ass for so long, <laughs> right? You c- couldn't get yeah. anything done in the past 20, 30 years. So maybe we can now build it into a proper union. As somebody happily ensconced, safe in Holland, mm-hmm. how do you think Brexit's going to shake out? Well, to be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but But sometimes I think we sort of overestimate you know, the sort of destructive effects of these kind of things. And we underestimate the resourcefulness of people just going on and doing their jobs. But it is also possible to um, manage this and, and make sure that it won't be as terrible as people feel it is. You very nearly ended on an optimistic note. We never have that on the podcast. That Sorry. Never happens. Sorry, I can't help it. <laughs> Rutger Bregman, thanks for coming in. Uh, Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There is on sale now. Thanks for having me. The end of the show has arrived, so that means another contribution to the Brexit time capsule. Tom Cabassi, as I guessed, what are you putting into our repository of things we'll miss if we ever leave the EU one day? So I, I think it's, it's, it's probably overly serious, but I think a, a big idea that you can build democracy between nations as well as within them. And I think it's this idea that you don't need to base all forms of human governance on an imagined nation. And I think for me, that is the one of the really important features of the European Union. It says that there is a different way of doing things uh, other than building uh, the the nation around, the state around the nation. And and I think that's a very sad thing. If we we lose that idea, that'd be very sad for us. Thanks, Tom. 
We got a bit of German this week for the closing clip. Here's listener Christina Seit. Ihr habt euch die Suppe eingebrockt. Jetzt müsst ihr sie auch auslöffeln. Somewhat ominously, that means you have cooked the soup. Now you must eat it up. <laughs> Send us your deeply disturbing European language clips at info@romaniacs.com. We'll use the most unnerving ones. And that's the end of the show. Tom Kabasi, thanks for coming on. Um, if you had to make one prediction this week, what would it be? We'll get meaningful vote uh, for back again. It will be defeated again and have a long extension. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> we'll be back soon. And on that note, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. Thanks from me to Lisa McBath, Fabrizia Lucato, Helen Heritage, Will Smith, the Fresh Prince of Remain, <laughs> Jonathan Graham, Doug Winter, Paul Gregory, Anthony Quinn, yes, the Anthony Quinn, CLV, Ian Miller, Mark Robertson and Ollie Dean. And hello from me to Marcus Alexander, David Lawson, Andrea Doria, Michael Parsons, Lizzie Loveridge, Cara Roxburgh, Richard, Lee Calden, Karen Anderson, Andrew Wilson, Paul T and Michael Walker. And thanks for me to Irene Solomon, Melissa Percival, Helena Thomas, Loz Pycock, Tomo, Stephen Bowden, Elaine Stapleton, David Hamm, Stuart Martin Hoare, Jan Werner, possibly the founder of Rolling Stone, Jason Cumming and Damian Matthews. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production was by me, Elsie Bath. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 